Welcome to the Ink Feather Podcast. We bring you fun new glimpses into the world of fantasy and science fiction publishing. Here you'll find interviews with the authors you love, insight from industry professionals, book reviews both succinct and extensive, and more. I'm your host and the founder of Ink Feather Book Reviews, Lauren Zurchin. In episode 10, I chat with author Laurel K. Hamilton. Laurel is a number one New York Times bestselling author of dozens of books, including the Anita Blake series and the Mary Gentry series. In today's episode, we dig into her newest Anita Blake book, Serpentine, which hit shelves on August 7, 2018. And stay tuned to the end of the podcast to find out how you can win a copy. Hi, Laurel. How are you? Hi, um, I am doing well and happy to have a beautiful weather on my end today. How about you? I'm great. I have been rolling in Anita Blake books for the past month or so. Uh, so now I have the visual of you literally rolling in the book. I should do a photo. That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that would be. That, that, that would be. I do audiobooks, though, too, so that could be, I don't know, awkward. Yeah, I actually, for those of you listening, I, I was supposed to interview Laurel last week, but the book we're talking about today, Serpentine, is one that is book 26 in this Anita Blake series. So I wanted to, you know, I've read most of the series, but I wanted a refresher from the old ones. And there were a few that I had missed, or I think there was one or two that I hadn't finished. So I wanted to like really be caught up. So I, you know, she was able to, you were able to move, which was great. But yeah, I've been immersed in these characters every day for the past month until finishing the new book actually today. So I, I really am pleased that you put that that you wanted to catch up and wanted to read and I really appreciate that that before we talked that you were caught up. I really appreciate that. Thank yes, you. it's well it's important. I mean, I I don't want to waste your time and I don't want to waste the listener's time and I uh, it makes it more fun for me as an interviewer to actually have interesting things to pull from and you know to actually like I said know what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> yes. Okay, so Book 26. Do you want to give a quick summary of the book for those who are listening that maybe, I don't know, I can't imagine people who are listening to this don't know what it's about, but just maybe like a quick couple sentence summary that you would kind of blurb it. The elevator yell. Yes. It is Anita Blake is going to be best man at Edward's wedding. He's gone from assassin that only hunts monsters to he's finally walking down the aisle with someone who we, we, didn't think he would marry, but he's actually going to go through with it. She's a lovely person on her own. Yes, she is. But our friends always choose differently in romance than we might hope. And we have all this mishigas with the wedding. I'm not a big fan of weddings, and it shows in the books, and neither is Anita. <laughs> but uh, we also have found a brand new type of lycanthropy that none of us had ever heard about. And a type of lycanthropy that I finally found one that really, truly creeped me out. And, you know, this far into a series, if the if me as an author, if I can't disturb myself, then I'm doing my job wrong. So let's delve into that. You said it, it truly, truly creeped you out. Was it one that you were researching to get ideas or is it just an idea that randomly popped in your head and you're like, well, that's really messed up? <laughs> like how, what do you mean by that? I was researching Greek and Roman myths. Now I've always loved, I've always loved myth and folklore. I've been reading that since, since I was a teenager, but... I had I wanted to try a, a fresh part that I hadn't used in the books before, so I went back to the Greek and Roman. 
I thought I remembered it very well and everything. But of course, when you haven't read something in years, you go back and you go, you know what? The gods were cursing people all over the place with really horrendous things. I mean, Medusa with the snake locks and Scylla and Charybdis and people being turned into monsters and bits and pieces of different monsters and different animals all in one is a curse. And I thought, well, that's really awful. If you think about it all the way through, that's a really horrendous thing to have happen to you. So what if you move that to modern day? You're right. It is a really creepy side effects of this lycanthropy curse. It's eerie. I I can even imagine writing it. You were just like, oh, because you kind of get graphic and there is a phobia. I personally love snakes, but there's a weirdness of the way that they move and it can be creepy for sure. Well, I used to be phobic of snakes years ago and I worked really hard to get over the phobia because it's not, it was an inherited family phobia. It wasn't a trauma point for me. If you have a phobia for that's trauma based, you can never get rid of it. There's no way to get rid of it. There's no therapy that will help you. But if it is not trauma based, you can go through therapy and, and work through it. So I got over my fear of snakes years ago, but as I talk to, uh, talk to people, I have a degree in biology. You talk to people who are herpetologists, you say snakes and they say, nobody likes a surprise snake. <laughs> Even they do not want to open their closet door and have a surprise snake leap out at them. No. Even if you like snakes, you don't want a surprise snake where you don't expect it. But then I guess that'd be true of almost any wild animal, wouldn't it? Well, it makes me think of a story when I was a teenager there was a like an orb spider that built a beautiful web in the corner of my bedroom. And I remember being like, oh, I don't want to destroy this web. It's perfect. It's beautiful. And then like the next day I forgot about it and went to open the window and walked into it completely. I don't mind spiders, but it was creepy looking and it kind of gave me the creeps. So I, I freaked out. So, yes, I can 100% relate to that. You, you did the I walked through the spider web dance. Oh, it was, I was screaming like a maniac and I am not a squeamish girl. And I was like, "Ah!" so yes, surprise animals, surprise snakes. Yeah, I can appreciate that for sure. Well, and the plot of this book, when I, when I read the blurb and like kind of how you introduced it, it's like, okay, it's Edward's wedding. Anita's going to be in Edward's wedding. That's the overarching story. But my notes to myself here are, First sentence is, nice wedding idea, but shit hits the fan. And you said right even going in before they left, this lycanthropy kind of came up in in the story and it's weaved throughout and everything kind of happens tag teaming. Now, something that I saw you talk about on social media, it might have been on Instagram, but you said something recently about... Edward kind of takes control and just runs and you're not really, he just kind of, your plots just go crazy. And yeah. Talk to me about that with this book because it's an Edward heavy book. I know he's a fan favorite character. He's one of my favorite characters. I always know there's going to be really crazy shit happening when he's in yes. the book. Yes. So, but how did that, how did the story evolve? Like you said, you obviously did the research and were freaked out by the idea, but how did he take the story and run with it? Well, anytime I add Edward to a book, I know it's going to be a longer book for one thing, because he, he just, he just demands room. But the other thing is, this is a culmination that starts, you know, in, in book nine, when we first meet Donna, his, his intended. And I did not know Donna Parnell existed until one paragraph before he introduced Anita to her in book nine. Really? I did not know she existed. I didn't know know she was a character. So I have one paragraph to prepare as he introduces her to Anita in the first draft of that book. And that's 
how Edward is. Edward has a life of his own when I am not writing. I swear, I swear this character has a life of his own when I'm not observing him. He goes off and he does things, and then he comes back and tells Anita and reports to me. And basically, it's like talking to somebody that's off doing their own thing. And most of my characters, unless I'm sitting down at the computer, their story stops. His does not. He seems to have backstory and is out there in Edward land doing his thing. So knowing that we were going to do his wedding and knowing that he does this to me and always surprises me, <laughs> I really went in with ex expecting anything and everything. I didn't know if, uh, is he really going to walk down the aisle? Is it really going to work? And the lycanthropy, it's not either Edward or Anita's fault. The lycanthropy is actually Micah, Anita's, uh, one of Anita's fiancés, you know, the head of the coalition for better understanding between human and lycanthropic communities, affectionately known as the Furry Coalition. And this family with this cursed type of lycanthropy where, you know, they turn into a mass of snakes and it starts off and, and it's progressive and awful. They want a cure and they come to him. So he's come to Anita for help. Is there any help for this family? any help for these people. So literally it wasn't Edward's fault. It wasn't Anita's fault. And when you have people starting to disappear from, from the hotel where the wedding's going to be, again, it's not their fault. Yeah. But yet it, they're marshals, U S marshals with the preternatural branch. So they get drawn into the case, even though he's there for the wedding. And I, I went into this, not knowing, not knowing what Edward was going to have been doing while I hadn't been on stage, what he and Don had been doing, Peter and Becca, their children, it's all, it's a wild card every time he's involved. Hmm. So I just sit there and went, okay, buckle up. And here we go. So the mystery itself, I had more control over yeah. until Edward got involved. And then it's always a wild card because he's just that kind of guy. You, you referenced Micah and how this case was affecting him. It just occurred to me there are very strong emotions running very high through a good chunk of this book with a lot of the main characters, including Edward. And it's, it was really interesting to see. I mean, I have a whole separate note here about Nathaniel's character development, but like even with Edwards, just his being torn between his identities and, and it, what is his identity and where does, where do you find the balance and the bigger question that that makes Anita ask herself about her life and all of those things. Mm -hmm. I could see that being fun to write, but I could also, I'm imagining if it's a character that you has so much backstory, you know, like I could see that being something crazy to kind of have to tackle. It, it is, it is, but I, I love Edward. Edward is easy to write because he's got such a strong voice. Yes. As long as I don't fight him, we're fine. So, yes, there's a lot of emotionality. But I find, I, I don't know, I find that there's always a lot of emotion around weddings. Around, not around the wedding itself sometimes, but around coming to that point of walking down the aisle and being willing to commit. I'm a wedding photographer, so. Then you know. Yes, I do. And it's weird. It's it's, I always say this, people get weird about what, like, it's like these different sides of humans come out for weddings and it's very bizarre to see people having to deal with their own issues and, and how things manifest. So and that is part of what some of the struggle is with Donna and her one friend. There's some crazy shit that happens with that. I don't want to give too much away because I actually really enjoyed that whole plot point uh, with one, her and one of her bridesmaids. Yeah, 
I, yeah, and, and and usually there's one bridesmaid. There's always one bridesmaid that has her own issues and tries to make the wedding about her. Mm-hmm. Uh, not always, but if you get over two bridesmaids, you're usually going to have somebody with a drama llama complex. Some, some issues, yeah. So kind of tying these together, too, at this point with having so many characters and backstories in general and so much to play with, and lots to pull from. Is it ever overwhelming for you? Like, was it overwhelming to sit down and do this story? Or did you just go, oh, I wanted this new lycanthropy, this myth, and you knew Edward's wedding was happening, and it was an easy evolution to this story? Well, it's both easy and hard. I mean, it's complicated, but people ask me, how do you keep track of everything at this point with this many characters this far into the series? But these are like my friends. Yeah. You know, you don't have to you don't have to work at knowing what your best friend looks like and how they would talk. And I have been writing these characters for over 20 years. Yes. So if I don't write them for too long, I miss them. And other than Edward and a few other characters, most of the time I sit down and it's like you would pour yourself a cup of coffee and go, how have you been? How have you been? What's been happening? And you almost have to get that part out of the way before you can dig in to decide what the book's going to be. And sometimes a character will, in the middle of a book, you know, just rebel, even ones that are usual, usually not. Uh, Crimson Death, Damien, Damien kicked a fit ha- about halfway through on yes. that one. Well, and I was even just about to reference that book because, you know, he, he pops up to the forefront a bit and then he kind of is in the background for a book or two or three and then he's a little bit in and then he has in the last book it was like oh we haven't really seen a lot of Damien for a while and he was obviously a prevalent character in the book before this one so I can see how for you that would be nice to balance and go oh who haven't I visited with a while what's been going on with everybody and as a reader it makes it very interesting because it's like oh I love all these characters it, it's a nice way to kind of balance and enjoy them without feeling like you're getting bombarded with everybody all the time at every book. And, and, you know, a destination wedding means you have a limited cast. And so it gave me time as it gave me time to get everybody on stage and have their moments, have character building moments and having that sometimes can be more difficult if you have more people. And that makes sense. <laughs> I keep referencing back to Nathaniel in this book. He, was kind of shocking to me in a little way. How so? I mean, obviously, stereotypically, we know him as this more of a submissive personality, easygoing, kind of non-confrontational, go-with-the-flow guy in the group. And he's kind of been stepping into his own in the past few books and becoming more confident yep. and aggressive. Not aggressive, but more... More confident, more more willing to, to demand what he wants or needs, yeah. It was interesting to see his emotions come to such a head because a few books back we have him dealing with him getting what he needs, you know, in the bedroom sexually and he needs to deal with that and Anita needs to deal with that. And obviously that's a big part of the relationship. But this whole thing about the dynamic of the three of them and him and Micah together, Mm -hmm. I I don't know, as a reader, I was just like, it it affected me more with his character. I like felt, I was like, he is not okay. (laughs) Like, nope. Did you know going in you were going to have him kind of have this emotional culmination at the because uh, and I can see how that would happen in his mind. He's like, we're going on a vacation. It's going to be romantic. It's going to be wonderful. And then obviously it isn't. Okay, I I didn't know for sure. I give the characters room to decide whether they're going to be okay with certain things, and and 
I prefer to write the book before I realize some of my motivation, because if you realize in the middle of it, the deep therapy work is happening or that you're affected by something, sometimes it can make it like very awkward while you're writing. But if you realize afterwards, it's better. I have had the unique experience of having perfectly competent, logical, wonderful people with, with professional jobs, even other writers tell me that rather than talk about sex with their children, their teens, they are give, just handing them my books. Hmm. The first time somebody told me this, I just looked at them. I had no, I had no response. My books are not how to's. My books are definitely not a replacement for talking to your children about sex. I am accurate in what I write and I, I, it's accurate is how sex works, but sex works different for other, for, for everybody. Yeah. The mechanics may be the same, but everything else can be different from person to person or from, from day to day, mood to mood, depending on the person. So that, that impacted me being told that people were reading it that way kind of messed with me hmm. and people going, well, you know, the sex is always hot, how it's always perfect. And, and I went, well, yeah, because, you know, everybody gets out of their way and makes it a priority. In real life, I thought, you know, am I being fair? So a lot of their, some of their emotional angst and some of the conversation are, are not based on my life, but they are based on real conversations if this was your life. I mean... I am communication, communication, communication. That is the key, especially if you're polyamorous, which is to love more. So being in serious relations with multiple people at the same time, it's like getting your master's or doctorate in romance or relationships. And I chose, if the characters were all right with it, to have that kind of talk on stage to show that this is actually how you do it. You actually talk about things you talk about things that make you uncomfortable. You talk about things that, that, that make you just make, make you so uncomfortable to mention, but they're your needs. They're, they're what's important to you. And I think that we do not, do not show uh, enough in the media that you're supposed to talk about this. People treat, people treat intimacy in relationships, not just physical intimacy, but emotional intimacy. They often seem to treat it is if something that doesn't need time and care, that you'll, you'll figure it out. Nobody tells you how to do this. Nobody tells you how to balance work and sex. That, and sex is the thing that gets the back, back burner for a lot of people. So I decided that, you know, if, if people are reading it and they're not reading anything else, that I would... I, I would be the, I'd have the uncomfortable conversation because Nathaniel is the ultimate, I mean, this is Nathaniel's area. He's, he's, he's a very sensual person. It's very, very important to him. Yes. It's important to Anita and Micah too, but it's more important to him. And I chose, if they were okay with it, to show that, you know, it takes one person to say, this is not okay. It's not okay that everybody's working or out of town and we're not having as much sex. That's not okay to me. And so often, if you're the person wanting more sex, you're made to feel like you're the villain. Yes. You're made, you're especially, and 
I, I date, I, I date both men and women. I, you know, I have, uh, my husband, I have a girlfriend that we're coming up, you know, on 10 years with. And so I can say this from both sides that women especially make you, can make you feel like the bad guy or girl for wanting sex mm-hmm. more than men and men get the other pressure. Their pressure is that men are supposed to be ready for sex all the time. Yeah, it's supposed to be like, aren't you, aren't you horny all the time? Don't you just want to bang everybody all the time? Because you're a man. Exactly. And that's not true. It depends on the woman. I know women whose sex drives are incredibly high. I know men that their sex drives are about average, but it's, it's good for them. So, so yes, my, it's that, awkward, that awkward couple moment was very, very real. And the kind of conversation, if this was your life, you would really have to have for a multiple, for a good, solid relationship. You have to be willing to talk about the things that make you feel awkward and embarrassed. You have to. Because if you don't talk about them as part of a couple, then, then your needs stop being met and you start getting sad and yeah. you start feeling hurt. And if you don't talk about it, that just festers in the dark and gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And then a lot of people let it blow up as anger and, or they just quietly begin to pull away from each other. Neither one is acceptable. If, if you are in a committed relationship, you have to be willing to talk about the things that are important to you, whether it is who does the dishes for the third time this week, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I don't want to ask you again, whatever it is that's important to you, then you have to talk about it and you have to negotiate about it. And I felt it was important, but part of that scene came from the fact that people are telling me that they are using the books in a way I never intended as a writer. Well, and it's interesting because Thinking about this in regards to Nathaniel, as you were talking about just emotional intimacy, I mean, again, it, it that in multiple ways runs through this book in the sense that Anita is, she's struggling in general with the idea of Nathaniel maybe wanting a baby someday. And how yep. does she feel about that? And her having to come to grips with the idea of, well, I don't want a baby, but I'm feeling jealous that he might have a baby with someone else. And how do I feel about that? And like, what is going on? So she has to examine herself. There's mm-hmm. also the emotional intimacy issues with Donna thinking that Edward is emotionally cheating on her with Anita. Yep. With their friendship and how you navigate that. It, it's for as much, you know, fun sex and murders and like canthropy, your either your character, your books are so character heavy. And I, I love, I, I mean, they feel for as crazy as the shit is, it feels very real Yes, as a reader. Like most people don't have multiple lovers that are all working in a functional poly group. Most people don't have, aren't, you know, shapeshifters. <laughs> yes. I mean, I've definitely enjoyed being in the heads of these characters and feeling like, like, I guess maybe that's why the Nathaniel thing threw me. It was, oh shit is getting real because Micah's having a hard time right now. And Anita's even thinking, oh great, this is where everything goes wrong. And then Nathaniel's got it. I mean, it was just as a reader, it was, it was just, I don't know. It, it, it shook me a little bit emotionally just being like, wow, this is intense stuff that they're dealing with. Well, thank you. Cause that, that's kind of the goal for the scene because it's not easy. Being a committed couple is not easy. Even two people is not easy, but you add even one more person. But if, you know, I, I can speak from experience with, with our own, you know, live in foursome that, that the more people you add, the more complex it gets. And the more you have to talk and talk and talk and communicate and everybody has to work their shit. If you don't work your shit, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. 
If you complain to somebody, whether it is someone in an intimate relationship or somebody at work, if you take a serious emotional grievance, a serious grievance to them, and you say, this is, this is really bothering me or hurting me, I need this to change, and they say yes, and they listen to you, but nothing changes in their behavior, then you're not heard. If nothing changes, it doesn't matter. You haven't really had a conversation that mattered. You have to have the conversation, then you have to have change of behavior. Yeah. That's how you know. And did, Mike and Nathaniel and Anita had their moment. They worked through it and persevered. And I thought that that was an important moment. And I love the character. I, I mean, we watched Nathaniel, you know, grow up. Oh, we as a really person. did. Yeah. He's such a cool character. He's like, He's like the best. I love him so much. I mean, <laughs> I do. I love them all in their own ways. And I, I really, well, I, I really have issues with Richard. He's kind of redeemed himself, but I really didn't like him for a while, man. I was like legitimately mad at him. I know me too. He was a big ass man. He was really, you really, <laughs> you made him. I was like, he is so horrible. What is going on? I think the problem with Richard is I created him is a, I created him to be the perfect man for Anita so that she wouldn't get involved in Jean-Claude early in the series. I was really trying to prevent that. And I think like all times we match, do matchmaking with our friends. It's never works. Never do it. Well, and again, it's like the idea of Richard was a perfect man in what you, we think should be a perfect man or what this ideal is. We think we need for our lives as opposed to being like, is this actually what is good for me? Well, I think Richard was probably the perfect man for me in my twenties. I, if I continue with my biology degree, but uh, of course Anita wasn't me. Yeah. Like I said, fixing up your friends, just don't do it. <laughs> Getting back to the uh, the sex thing, you've you've, I mean, it's been an important thing in the whole series. Have you found with the evolution of acceptance or acknowledgement of uh, open more openness about sexuality as the series has moved on throughout the twenty years you've been writing? How has it been as an author being able to present? these ideas more, are they more socially acceptable now, especially after like 50 shades and BDSM and now everything's a big thing now. Have you found different reception for those parts of your books? The BDSM stuff I was doing long before shades, 50 shades. And yes, initially I had, you know, some people were going, Oh, the BDSM, BDSM. Now, of course that's almost mainstream though. May I just say that, if you love Fifty Shades of Grey, rock your bad self on, but the BDSM in it is so bad. So bad. If, 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 you know, the, the, the main male character, if he tried that kind of crap in, in a real dungeon, they would blacklist him and escort him to the door because, you know, you don't, you just don't manipulate people. If she doesn't want to play, then don't make her play. It's yeah. not about that. It's consent, and the submissive has the consent. If she says no, it means no. And it means no in the dungeon, even more so, or just as much as on any date. Drives me crazy, that, that part. I guess I was just saying, you know, like how it, it, it brought it yes. more into the main. Like everyone was like, oh, my God, it's so hot, and they're, doing, they're beating each other up with the sticks, and, you know, like it. And, and, and I'm sorry, the BDSM in Fifty Shades, a slow Sunday for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> but... But yes, it has mainstream BSM. Weirdly, the thing that has gotten the less is still not acceptable, even though it's more more mainstream than it was when I started, is the polyamory. 
the fact that she's has relationships with so many people that is still people are still saying things to me that okay i've been told there's too much polyamory in the books i'm going well polyamory is my sexual preference it's my lifestyle if i was gay nobody's nobody would in this day and age would tell me my books were too gay yeah but they feel free to tell me my books are too poly we poly does not get the same respect and may I just say that bisexuality is still the bastard child of the alphabet soup the LGBT community has become. Still, bisexuality is still not seen as, as still gets crap from, it's still treated as if you, you haven't chosen. You haven't, you need to make up your mind. Bisexuality, I have met people that are literally 50-50. I have a, a bisexual friend who married a man, but that doesn't mean she doesn't think women are attractive. She just, that's who she chose to be her partner. It's, yeah. And she gets people are always like, what? You're not gay anymore. And she's like, okay, stop. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's like, it's like, okay, you are not in a relationship currently, but you're still heterosexual, right? That doesn't stop because you're not currently dating anyone. Mm-hmm. Well, the same thing goes with you're gay or bisexual or even if you're polyamorous. Whatever your sexual preference is, just because you're not in a relationship currently doesn't stop it. I know a lot of people that are bisexual that their poly revolves around the fact that they marry one sex and then they're allowed to date the opposite sex that they married. So they have the person they love, their primary, and then they date the other sex. So they don't have to give up either. It's, it's it, bisexuality makes bisexuality. I think is probably the most challenging for monogamy for, for regular monogamy is that's the most challenging. I would think because you're giving up 50% of what you like. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, I, I guess that's why I wanted to know how sex is such a broad topic and you tackle these different things that are, I don't even want to say taboo, but maybe non-traditionally seen maybe as a, better way yeah i guess it was just i was just curious over the evolution of this series that is beloved and has hit the list number one and people obviously connect with these characters and i I could see i guess as a woman i'm not i don't have any issues with the with it but i guess i just know myself emotionally and i think i would have a hard time with it and maybe that's where people go with it in their mind they can't understand how that could be a thing i don't know well you mean the polyamory? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm just, I'm trying to understand why people get so hung up on it, considering we're in Anita's head and, and it's her life. And, you know, and they're like, there's too much of it in the books. I'm going, well, that's who Anita is. I think that part of it though, is that we as a culture are very committed to choosing the, the one we're, we're very invested in the myth that there is that one special soulmate person out there and that once you meet them, all others fade, and that's your one true love, and it will be perfect. I think that myth, and I do say myth, because to me, in my life, I mean, I married my college sweetheart, and I was deeply, deeply in love. First person I ever fell in love with. I earned my little white dress, very traditional, uh, the first time around, and we were married for 16 years. But it didn't work for me. Monogamy, monogamy did not work for me. Standard, you know, heterosexual monogamy did not work for me. And, um, so the second time I, I vowed that I would not, I would not do that again if it didn't work. Yeah. But there are people that are still upset with me 
They're, they're, they're literally upset with me for leaving my first husband, even though I was unhappy, that, even, that makes even sense. though he's, even though he's married someone else, just like I have, and we've gone our separate ways. And in fact, my, my husband, Jonathan and I are, we're celebrating uh, 17 years this year. So, you know, we've been together this long and there's still people upset with me because Anita didn't, didn't choose between Richard and Jean-Claude and take just one person. And there's still people that ask me, well, when is she going to choose? Who's she going to choose? I'm going, she's chosen. I was like, there are four people with rings on their fingers right now. This group of people. Yeah. And I could not, I cannot legally marry everybody that I'm living with. I cannot legally marry them. Even though we are a unit, even though we, you know, financially and everything else, we are a unit. But we cannot legally wed because it is not recognized. You can only marry one person. And, and, but for most people, the big thing about dating more people is the jealousy issue. Yeah. And I, I totally understand that. For me as a person, I find that if I'm getting my needs both physically and emotionally met, I share really well. But if you do not share really well, you cannot be poly. And let me just say this. Poly means that everybody knows what everybody's doing. So if somebody you know is married and they say they're poly, but their spouse doesn't know they're sleeping with other people, that's not poly. That's yeah. cheating. Yeah, it is. And get your fucking cheating off of my poly. I'm tired of it. Tired, tired of being tarred with that brush. Miss Manners does not cover sitting down across the table from somebody's spouse to talk about the parameters with which you are going to date and have an intimate relationship with their, their other half. Yeah. That, that is a level of uh, social awkwardness. For the first time you cross that bridge, it's like, oh, dear God, I can't believe I'm about to have this conversation. But you have the conversation, and you realize that you can talk about anything. You can talk about you can talk reasonably like adults, like reasonable human beings. Well, and that's it. It just, if anything, it's a, it's a level of emotional intelligence that I think a lot of people may not acknowledge for themselves if they're struggling, because I always wonder, I mean, how many people in unhappy relationships, you know, what are they not acknowledging in themselves? What about the relationship isn't working, whether they're, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's getting to that point of having those conversations that might be awkward or uncomfortable or whatever, but it makes you, yeah. Like you said, get your needs met, you know, so you're using these books and, and having it as a reflection. I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's really great to read her be in Anita's head and to see what it's like to be in a healthy poly relationship situation, you know? Well, and one of the things about Nathaniel's character that I love, and it's an unintended consequence is when we first meet him at 19, he is a former drug addict, former street street prostitute. You know, he was abused as a child. He was used in child pornography. He's had a to say he's had a hard uh, life is to say that the you know Titanic was a rowboat accident. It's it's just yeah. tremendously horrible past. Then when Anita meets him, he is moved up to high class, basically call man if that's a phrase. But he's and he's he's he his day job is still he's taking off his clothes at guilty pleasures. But he is. And I'm just going to say this. No, I understand that strippers just take their clothes off. That does not mean that they are do anything. They yeah. do not have for money. That is not what I meant when I heard all that conversation glommed together. I am trying to encapsulate years 
of Nathaniel's life in one go. Yeah. So I wanted to say that. <laughs> I'm with you. And he's a good example of, of, again, of that kind of life. It's like what we, these stereotypes we put boxes on or what society has told us to put these boxes onto things. And it's like, okay, guess what? You can recover from addiction. You can be comfortable with your body in public. You can you know, not have to sell yourself and still be able to be comfortable with your sexuality. All these different, like, dynamics yeah. and nuances that are addressed in these characters. It's I, I have now had people, more people than I can count, tell me that they have gone to therapy and gone to therapy for addictions or abuse because Nathaniel did. Wow. And, yeah, isn't that amazing? What a, an amazing thing to hear. And I have had more wow. men, more men tell me quietly, you know, the, you usually, you know, and they'll say, thank you for talking about the fact that men can be our victims too, because that doesn't get, most people don't, don't talk about that. That is one of the most underreported crimes is, is men as the victims of abuse, because it's so stereotypical that as a man, you're supposed to be able to protect and take care of yourself. Yeah. And so the fact that, ne that Nathaniel has this background and he has gone to therapy and he has talked about getting his work and you watch him work his, his demons on stage. I have had now, like I said, I've lost count of the number of people who said, I, if Nathaniel can do it, I can do it. And how magical is that? I'm, I'm actually, I, I'm not lying. I got emotional when you just told me that because as someone who is also a professional creative in a different art field, the idea of having just something that, you know, your art, your way of connecting with this world, we all hope to impact. And the, I mean, that is huge. I mean, that isn't just, is. you know, you saved me from a dark time, which is also huge, but it is, you know, having people really have to examine their demons and not only do they not feel alone, but they feel like they can, it's okay like you give them permission to that. That's wow. That's kind of, I'm like, I'm a little <laughs> like, I'm like emotional here. That's amazing. It started, it started with people telling me that women telling me that they gotten out of abusive relationships hmm. it, because they knew Anita wouldn't take it. Wow. It started there. And I got, I, I, I mean that, that I hear the most. That is so cool. It really is. That is so amazing. You read these books and the, but I mean, that just goes to show you how, like I said, beside all of the fun supernatural stuff and the mysteries and the murders, this char the characters are so relatable and you can connect with them. That that that's just that's just amazing. That really is amazing. It it really is. And and I think that once people started telling me that kind of thing, it's made me more conscientious. Uh, like I said, the in in part the conversation between the three of them uh, exists because people have told me how important these characters are to them. Yeah. I mean, they're my imaginary friends, but they're other people's imaginary friends. And more than that, they, they are, they are guides to help them live. In, you know, it's not just entertainment. It can be that voice you need to tell you, go get help, you know, take care of yourself. It's okay to ask for what you need. It's okay. And, that you know we're not we're not our abuse you 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 something bad happens to you but you don't have to have that define you for the rest of your life you can heal you can get better you can have a life a good happy life even if something really bad has happened to you and that is 
one of the continuous messages of, of the books. And that seems to, and the more it resonates with people, the more it, I, I put it on, I, I have, I put it on stage. I have to say that, that for a while it messed with me in a way of making me go, Oh my God, how, you know, paying too much attention. It's fiction. What am I going to do? But I kind of worked through that to the point where, yes, some conversations are because the fans tell me they're, they're listening that closely. It's meaning that much to them. Yeah. And to, you know, and also this book is about the course of true love really doesn't run smooth. Yeah. If, if you're in a committed relationship, you have the hard talks and it's not that you love somebody because they're perfect. You love somebody because you love somebody. Yeah. And you work on and together over each other's flaws or each other's problems. And, you know, what one person sees as a flaw, the other person, somebody else might not. But talking about the emotional cheating, Anita, you know, that Anita and Edward's friendship is emotional cheating, that idea. And one of the interesting things is if you really look at it, everyone's emotionally polyamorous because you, you have your spouse or your, your, your primary person, your, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your whatever, but you also have friends. You have a best friend and your best friend is almost never your spouse or your, your live-in partner. Yeah. And you have hobbies. So you have, if you're into cars, you have your car friends. If you game, you have your gaming friends. You don't get all your emotional needs met by one single human being. So emotionally, we're all, we all have other connections that support us emotionally. That's been one of the interesting things is I've been polyamorous and uh, write more of it and talk to other people, realizing that you have to have other people. One solid human being cannot support one other person exclusively emotionally and everything you can't spend your rest of your life talking to only that person. Yeah. So it's too much pressure. I wouldn't want to be that person for somebody now, but let me just say monogamy is a wonderful thing. I have a lot of friends who are, you know, celebrating 20, 30 and heading towards the big four I, I have a lot of friends that are happily monogamous and if that works for you, that works for you. The big thing and the big message I want to get out in, in the books are I try to, and, and that is that whatever works for you, what, as long as you harm none, yes. as long as everybody's consenting adults, then whatever makes you happy makes you happy. And don't apologize for that. And it's not just about sex and intimate relationships either, because people make other people feel bad for their hobbies. And look, and and doing that disdainful thing if if you like something that they don't think is important, and that's just that's a type of emotional bullying. Well, and even what you just said about people going and getting therapy. I mean, I, I maybe a nice way to summarize everything we've just said is it, these you know these characters kind of give give people permission, give people permission to to maybe be who they are or to see that this is an option um, or to get therapy or to explore their sexuality or, you know, that's, that's a really yeah. big part of, I think a reader connecting to these characters is, you know, and if, if they can go, Oh, this is me. I relate to this or, or I need to examine this because I'm feeling something here. 
yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm actually, I got like chills. This is like, I'm just talking with you about all this and just realizing how, like I said, being immersed in these books and having read them every day for the past probably month, I think at least, because there's 26, I didn't even read the short story. So I was just like flowering <laughs> through. Um, That's okay. Yeah, I just, I just can see how that really affects people. I can't wait. We're, the day that this interview goes live is, is release day, and I can't wait to see what people say about, about the characters in, in the book. It's, it's just so cool. I am, I am really looking forward to that, too, because, you know, you write, you're sitting in your office by yourself. Yeah. And with my imaginary friends, and you really don't know. You write your story, and then you send it out there. And a story, a story is like, like an echo. You have to have somebody you have to have a reader or a listener stories are to be shared. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Before we go, I just want to see what are you working on now? Cause you know, now the, the, the ball is always rolling with writing. <laughs> I have the beginnings of Anita Blake number the 27th book, of course, because when I finish a book, I open a file and make at least notes for the next book. When the voice is at its strongest in my head, smart, and I also am working on a brand new world with a brand new character. Ooh. And I can't say anything more about that because my agents told me I can't. That's okay. I'm really bad at oversharing sometimes. And I am, for fans who will ask, please, t I am making notes for Mary. Mary, Mary Gentry series. Mary's just wanting her happy ever after back, damn it. And she is, I'm making notes to see how, how we can fix that. Fix what I broke last book. Wow. So you've got a lot of good things on your plate right now. I do. I, I have, I, I actually also I can't give you details of when publishing, but I am going to be in some anthologies. I decided I'd try to do some short stories again and, uh, and just stretch my legs in, in a different venue, you know? Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, it's been very fun. Well, we'll have to keep our eyes out, and I will link to all the different series that we're talking about, and I can't wait to see what the new, as it evolves, what, you know, when we find out all, what the new stuff's about. So thank you so much for chatting with me. Oh, you're very welcome, and I'd be happy to come back, um, come back and tell you about the new stuff as it comes out. Oh, that would be great. All right, listeners, uh, Laurel K. Hamilton, it was an awesome interview. Thank you so much for listening, and I will be back soon. Bye. Bye. We have teamed up with Laurel's publisher, Berkeley Books, to give away one copy of Serpentine to our U.S. listeners. Be sure to head over to inkfeatherbookreviews.com and enter the giveaway on the blog post that goes with this episode for your chance to win a copy.